Welcome to the podcast of Grace Crossing Church, where life and faith intersect. So this morning we continue our series, uh, The Church Has Left the Building. We, for the last number of weeks, have been focusing on the appearances of Jesus that we read in the four gospel narratives. Now I want to remind you of something I said a few weeks ago. There are 40 verses dedicated to the resurrection. There are about 100 that are dedicated to the appearances of Christ. There are about 800 words devoted to the resurrection, about 2,500 words that are given to the appearances of Jesus. So, so the reality is it matters. It matters a lot. And in this series, we've been talking about the variety of ways that Jesus appeared. D- Jesus did not just simply appear on one day. He did not appear only one time. Jesus appeared multiple times over a period of 40 days. And each time that Jesus appeared, he appeared in a slightly different way to a slightly different audience in a slightly different form. And as you can imagine, to a slightly different reaction. This morning, let's begin our talk by picking it up where it all actually begins. And that is at the tomb. Mark's Gospel, chapter 16, verses 5 through 7. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go. Tell his disciples... And Peter. Interestingly, Peter is the only disciple that's mentioned in this narrative by name. The angel in the tomb instructs the women to go tell the disciples, and when you go, don't forget to tell Peter too. Don't leave Peter out. Now that is significant, and I think it's significant for this reason. I think it's significant because I don't think Peter any longer felt as though he was a disciple. There is a separation that's noted in Mark's gospel between the disciples and Peter. And here's the reality. I don't think that it's because Jesus no longer considered Peter a disciple. I think it's because Peter no longer considered himself a disciple. Peter had denied Jesus and so had distanced himself from a relationship with Christ. In fact, he swore that he did not even know who Jesus was. Peter felt like a failure. And so Peter felt unforgivable. I don't know about you, but I know in my own life, whenever I feel like a failure, I also feel unforgivable. They're just something that makes me begin to question whether I am worthy of God's love. And when I begin to feel like a failure and begin to see myself as unforgivable, I actually can begin to stop acting like a Christian. Um, I no longer see myself, perhaps, even as a true Christ follower. And, And there's a danger in that, because when we stop seeing ourselves like a Christ follower, we stop thinking like a Christ follower, and we even then stop behaving 
like a Christ follower. Well, here's what Jesus does. Jesus at his resurrection made a point. And his point was, I'm not just simply coming to my disciples, those that have remained faithful to me, but I'm going after particularly the one who felt like his failure was fatal. Peter felt like a lost cause. He felt like a hopeless cause. And so Jesus specifically points Peter out and says, Peter is the one that I want to know. He is not forgotten and he is not unforgivable. Jesus wanted him to know that I am going to the grave and beyond to have a relationship with you. And I think the narrative of the appearances of Jesus actually give us that very same assurance. Jesus wants all of us to know that he went to the grave and beyond because he wanted relationship with us. So Jesus pursues Peter, not only to restore his belief, but I believe to restore the relationship between he and Peter. It was actually the third time that Jesus appears to the disciples. The first time and the second time, Peter was not with them. The third time on the Sea of Galilee, Peter's there. And the Bible tells us in John's Gospel, chapter 21, verse 14, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when he comes this third time, he prepares breakfast for the disciples. And as they're eating their breakfast, Jesus, in John chapter 21, verse 15, he turns his attention to one of his disciples, Peter. Here's what he says. When they had finished eating, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. There are two things that really stand out to me here that I think are important for us today. The first is this. I think if I love God, I will say so. If I love God, I will say it. I told my wife the day that we got married that I loved her. Can you imagine if I had never again said I love you to my wife? In fact, if my wife ever had to ask me, do you love me? We've already gone off the rails in our relationship. Something is already wrong in our relationship. Because when you love someone, they should not have to ask you to tell them that you love them. You should just simply offer your love to them. What Jesus does here is Jesus wants to hear Peter say those words, Jesus, I love you. And I think the reason that Jesus asked Peter this question, he doesn't ask it one time. He doesn't ask it two times. Jesus asked Peter three times the question. It could be that Jesus was wanting to redeem him from the three times that he had denied Christ. But more likely, I think what Jesus is doing is Jesus is wanting to rebuild his confidence in himself and in their relationship. So Jesus knew something about human nature, that all of us will at some point learn about ourselves. It would have been a lot easier if Jesus had said to Peter, Peter, are you sorry for what you have done? That would have been a much easier question for Peter to answer. But what Jesus does is he asks him the question that is a simple question, but not an easy one. Do you love me? Do you love me? 
See, Jesus is aware that we can say, I'm sorry, and yet remain unchanged. He didn't just simply want Peter's remorse. He wanted Peter's heart more than anything else. And I want you to notice the emphasis on the line that Jesus says. Jesus asked Peter the question, do you love me more than all of these? The question today is, what exactly did Jesus have in mind when he talked about the more than all of these? Perhaps Jesus here is referring to Peter's toys and Peter's boats. He had gone back fishing. Perhaps he's saying, do you love me more than than all of your own resources? Perhaps he's asking Peter, do you love me more than your career? This is likely the very last time that Peter would be fishing, at least for fish. Perhaps he's asking Peter, do you love me more than your two closest childhood friends, James and John? Peter, do you love me more than your own flesh and blood, than Andrew, your brother? He wanted to hear Peter say those words, I love you more than all of these. See, if, if we love someone, we will say it. But secondly, if we love someone, we will show it. We will show it. Jesus recognized that practicing our love for him was much more important than proclaiming our love for him. Jesus did not simply want Peter's words. He wanted Peter's heart. That's what he was going after. And so every one of Peter's responses of, yes, I love you, Lord, Jesus then responds with giving him a purpose. Feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. I think what Jesus is doing is pretty significant. Jesus is actually renewing Peter's sense of purpose, that he has a reason for being, that his life still matters, is still important to the kingdom of God. Now, here's what it says in John chapter 21, verses 18 and 19. Peter begins to wonder about himself and the other disciples. He's comparing himself. What about them? What about John? And Jesus says these words to him in John chapter 21, verses 18 through 19. When you were younger, you dressed yourself. You went where you wanted to go. You did what you wanted But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands. Someone else will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to Peter, follow me. It's interesting because Jesus looks into Peter's future and sees what Peter cannot see. And he has a goal for Peter's life, and that goal is the same goal that he has for our life. It's the goal of spiritual indifference. Now, we talk a lot about that here at Grace Crossing Church because it's significant. When we think of spiritual indifference, we often think of letting go of something we really want, something we'd like to hold on to, our own preference. But I think more times when you read Scripture, What you're discovering about indifference is it's actually also doing and embracing what you don't want. That was true of Jesus in the garden. 
He did not want to drink the cup of suffering. But he said, not my will, but your will be done, God. The indifference was not letting go of what he wanted. It was taking hold of what he didn't want. And when Jesus says to Peter, this is what your future holds, he was saying, I'm going to lead you places you don't want to go. I'm going to lead you to do things you don't want to do. But I'm asking you to have indifference. I'm asking you to follow me. Here's what Jesus was saying to Peter. Peter, up until now, you have lived like the words of Frank Sinatra. You've lived your way. But moving forward, you're not going to live it your way. You're not going to live your faith on your terms. You're going to have to live it on my terms. You're going to have to trust me. Follow me. That was the imperative. And all through the Gospels, friends, that's the imperative. Whenever Jesus invites us into a relationship with him, into a meaningful, trusting relationship with him, he uses those two words, follow me. And I think following Jesus implies three things. Following, first of all, implies leadership. To be a follower means there has to be a leader. And Jesus' invitation to Peter was, I want you to stay close enough to me to follow my lead. Secondly, following suggests relationship. It suggests that there is a nearness and a closeness that you have with the person that you are following. And finally, following affirms trust. Following affirms trust. It means that we must bring to Jesus and sort out our trust issues in the presence of Jesus. Now, friends, there is really only one of two ways that we can live the Christian life, but there's only one of them that work. The first way that we can live the Christian life is by our own strength and in our own power, with our own wisdom. In other words, we can do it our way. And what I found in my life is whenever I've tried to do that, it simply hasn't worked. The other way is to follow Jesus God's way, to trust in God's strength, to lean into God's wisdom, to know that God can be trusted with your life. And to that end, I want to ask you a question today. Is there anything in my life today that is getting in the way of me following Jesus? Is there anything getting in the way of my relationship with him? Getting in the way of following his leadership? Anything getting in the way of my trust in God? How am I doing following Jesus? And if you say to me today, I really don't know how to sort that out, how to figure that out, let me, let me give you a suggestion today. If you're married, ask your spouse how well you're doing following Jesus. If you're not married, ask a trusted friend and give them permission to be honest with you. And they will help you see how well you're doing following Jesus. Jesus goes after Peter because Jesus wanted Peter to know there are no hopeless causes. Peter, you still matter. Your life still matters. You still have purpose and you are fully forgiven. And today Jesus offers that to each of you as well. You are fully loved. You are fully forgiven. Your life matters and has purpose. And no matter how you feel about yourself today, you are not a hopeless cause. So Jesus makes a wonderful promise to us in John's gospel, chapter 10. Jesus said, I am the door to the sheep. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will come in and go out 
and find pasture. Jesus came not only to minister to broken hearts, but Jesus came to open up closed doors. I love that in the appearances of Jesus, so often he found the disciples locked behind closed doors. Not only were doors locked, but hearts were locked. And Jesus has a way of stepping in to locked places and opening up hearts to him. And this morning, uh, as we kind of conclude this series on the appearances of Jesus, we're going to end it at one of the most beautiful parts of the story, and that is the ascension. Before we get there, let's talk about the doors that Jesus already has given us. The cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is the door to God's forgiveness. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are on a path of destruction, but to we who are being saved, it's the power of God unto salvation. The cross is the door to God's forgiveness. The resurrection is the door to God's life. Jesus was resurrected on the third day to give us life. He said in John's gospel, chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And then the ascension that we read about both in Matthew's gospel, Luke's gospel, and in the book of Acts, the ascension is the door to the presence of God. The end of, nearing the end of Jesus' ministry, he begins to transition from his earthly form into his heavenly form. That transition actually begins at the transfiguration, but it doesn't get completed until the ascension. Now, many scholars believe that Jesus was ascended on the Mount of Transfiguration. In other words, he was taken up into heaven from the very same place where that began at the Transfiguration. We read about the Transfiguration in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 17, verses 1 through 3. Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them to a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. What is it that Peter, James, and John are seeing? What are they catching a glimpse of? They're actually catching a glimpse of Jesus in a transitional place from his human form into his glorified form. They were seeing that begin. But Jesus does not go up to heaven at the transfiguration. Heaven comes down to him for just a very brief moment. And had Jesus gone to heaven from the Mount of Transfiguration, he would have gone alone. I want you to think about this. He would have avoided the pain of the cross, and he would have aborted the purpose of his divine mission. He would, he would be nothing to us today other than a glorified figure. But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he chooses to leave the Mount of Transfiguration. He chooses to come down 
from the mountain to complete his mission. And in doing so, he both delays the gratification of his glorification and he guarantees our salvation. The ascension is the complete fulfillment of the transfiguration. Because at the ascension, Jesus returns to the presence of God, not just simply as the Son of God. He actually appears back and he he moves back to the presence of God as a perfect human being, as the perfect Son of God. And thereby, he opens us up access to all of us, all of us flawed human beings, all of us imperfect human beings are now given access to the presence of God because Jesus was the perfect Son of Man, the perfect Son of God. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 3, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I'm going, you may also be with me. And so the ascension is powerful because it is an open door that we get by Christ to the very presence of God. No longer is there limited access. No longer is there occasional connection to God. We have a steady, unbroken connection to the presence of God because of the ascension. So here's what the scripture says in Luke chapter 24 about the ascension. Verses 50 through 53. He, Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him. And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, praising God. I think it's interesting that while they looked to Jesus, while they lifted up their eyes, he was lifted up to heaven. I want to encourage us today that during the season that we're in, to do what the disciples did, to keep their eyes lifted up toward heaven, keep their eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The psalmist said, I look to the hills. From where, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. As we lift up our eyes toward heaven, let's remind ourselves from where our help comes. Our help comes from the Lord. And though Jesus was taken out of their sight, though he was no longer with them, They continued to worship. Let me ask you this morning, though we are not worshiping together today, are you still worshiping Jesus? Are you still honoring him? Are you glorifying and exalting him in your everyday life? And though we're not physically with our spiritual family, though we're not physically together with the body of Christ right now, do you still believe? That was the question Jesus said. I'm the resurrection life. Do you believe? John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Friends, I want to call you to belief today. And I think we are all at different levels of our belief in Christ, in the resurrected Christ, in the ascended Christ. Maybe today you feel like you've lost hope in God a little. 
Maybe your heart and your faith has become weakened. I want to encourage you that today you would restore your faith and your trust and your belief in God. Educational psychologist Benjamin Bloom actually wrote a paper back in the 1950s where he suggests that there are levels of learning, levels of believing. And I want to give you a loose adaptation of that today because I think there are five levels of belief that all of us go through in our life. And when we talk about Jesus and we talk about the resurrected Christ and we talk about the ascended Christ, we talk about our faith today. I think we're all at one of these levels of believing. The first stage is simply called awareness. We become aware of something. Maybe today you're just becoming aware of Jesus, who he is, how much he loves you, and that he wants relationship with you. The second stage is that we ponder. We ponder what we learned. The third stage is that we actually value it. We begin to put value in what we believe. And then there is what's called the action behavior gap in the middle of stage three and stage four. And until we cross that action behavior gap, we really never reach the two highest levels of belief, which are prioritizing and level five, owning. Friends, I want to encourage you today to own your faith. You're not coming to church and we're not gathering together. And right now it may be hard for you to believe. It may be difficult for you. You may be feeling a sense of hopelessness in your isolation. But I, I want to encourage you to keep pushing through the action behavior gap. Keep prioritizing your faith. Keep owning your faith. Keep on believing. That is Jesus' heart for each of us. It's been said that in the lifetime of every person, there's at least one moment of great opportunity. I think this could be our opportunity as a church, as a people. This could be our opportunity to step into our own faith, to own it in a way that perhaps we never have before. And so as we close today, what one step can you take to move to more ownership of your faith during this once-in-a-lifetime season? I pray that God will help you to move there. Let me pray as we close. Father, in Jesus' name, I lift up our church family to you. Thank you for Grace Crossing Church. Thank you for what you're doing in all of our hearts. And thank you that you're giving each of us an opportunity to reaffirm our faith in you and our trust in you. For the one today, Lord, who's listening, whose heart is becoming hardened, I pray that you'll bring a softening to them today. To the one whose faith is becoming weak, God, would you strengthen their faith in you. To the one who's feeling a sense of hopelessness today, God, thank you that you are our hope, and I pray that you'll give hope to that individual today. And then for the one, Lord, who maybe has never given their life to Christ, may this be their day to turn their heart upward and lift their eyes heavenward and say, God, I need a Savior, and I want you to be my Savior today. Step into our lives, we pray. Bring your grace to bear on our hearts and hold us in your love, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless each of you. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Grace Crossing Church, including service times and directions, check us out on the web at www.gracecrossingchurch.net.
We hope to see you at one of our upcoming weekend worship gatherings. Have a great day.